This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Each week on the One Hit Thunder podcast, we welcome a special guest to come take a deep dive into a one-hit wonder artist with us. And together, we decide if that artist brought the one-hit thunder or was nothing more than a one-hit blunder. You can find One Hit Thunder anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So hit that subscribe button and join in on the fun each week. We're here to entertain you. We'll sing your songs for good times, the best times, you can't go wrong. We'll two-step, a new step, it won't be long. When the Dixielands are playing, soon you'll be swaying, so come on, sing along. Hello, all you fun and lovely people out there, and welcome to another episode of Before My Time. I am your host, Gelsey Laurie, where we are talking about things we love that happened, well, aha, before our time. Today we are joined by, well, we're always joined by our lovely friend and producer, Matt Kelly, but he is here to talk about Doug Kinney, and I can't wait. Let's go. Well, what the hell is supposed to do you? All right, Matt, I am ready to learn all about Doug Kenny. I had been wanting us to talk about Doug Kenny actually right before we did the SNL episode. And then as we were recording the SNL episode, I was like, no, we have to do Doug Kenny. And then I just happened to reread a book that I forgot was like sort of like an almost semi biography about him. And I'm like, all right, all this information's fresh in my head. Just finished this book like a week ago. Let's just let's just dive in. Let's record it. Let's, let's talk go now. It. All right. You so got it. Tell me everything you know about Doug Kinney first. He's part of National Lampoon. That's all I've got. Like, okay. literally, I know nothing. OK, so Doug Kinney uh, and I'll say that the, the two sources that I have for this is source number one is a book called A Cinderella Story, The Making of Caddyshack. And mm-hmm. the other source is a Netflix biopic starring Will Forte called A Futile and Stupid Gesture. Ooh. Those are like the two Doug Kinney stories. There's also a book by the exact same name, A Futile and Stupid Gesture. That is the official biography. It's very expensive right now because it's out of print. So I haven't mm. <laughs> had a chance to grab that. So Doug Kinney got his start in Harvard writing for the Harvard Lampoon with his friend, Harry Beard. The Harvard Lampoon's been around for hundreds of years. Like, that is like... Oh, the Harvard the, Lampoon, yeah. Yeah, it was like the humor magazine of Harvard. That's where, like, all the high 
intelligent writers. A lot of Simpsons writers wrote for the Harvard Lampoon at one point. It's just considered like a very like abstract humor. But they're all brilliant. But but it's but it was only distributed in Harvard. It was just like the same as you would get like at your college, you get your college newspaper, like you could get this magazine while you were at Harvard. Doug Kinney spearheaded this idea that they were going to do an issue that was a parody of Playboy. And he was like, we should not only do this, but we should try to get it on actual magazine racks. And it caused this huge controversy where Hugh Hefner originally tried to sue them for them using his creative property, but then found the magazine actually really, really funny and was like, okay, you're good to go. But that was kind of when they got the spark of like, ooh, we could take what we're doing in Harvard and blow it out on a national scale. Hence, the National Mm -hmm. Lampoon. He cashed out in a huge way with this because it was such a high stakes deal and no one really thought that it was going to work because there wasn't a huge market for humor magazines. I forget the way it worked, but they basically signed a contract that like if their starting pay was like $10,000 for the year, at the end of five years, they could cash out for that 10,000 times however big the the product had grown up to that time. And almost bankrupt the magazine because the magazine was so successful that the person who signed the original contract didn't have enough money to pay them. Wow. He was kind of one of the people behind the infamous. It's it's arguably one of the most famous magazine covers of all time, which is a dog with a gun at its head. And the dog looks terrified and it says, if you don't buy this magazine, we will kill this dog. I mean, they were like, we're going to go for the sales tactic. Yeah. Like, and that was like issue like 10. You know what I mean? Like it was like early Mm -hmm. on. They're like, this is what our show is. Um, So they're doing this National Lampoon thing from the start. Doug Kinney was the wild card. So you had these friends who were putting this thing together, but Doug would just disappear for months on end and go on a drug binge into nowhere or decide to write the great American novel and would come back with like a 300 like he he wanted to write this book called like teenage commies from outer space or something like that and it was like this crazy counterculture parody uh but tied into like a 50 sci-fi aesthetic but with like hippies instead of aliens type thing and reportedly he just went missing didn't say goodbye to anybody just up, packed his bags, left for like six months to live on a vineyard and write this book and came back and gave it to his friend Beard and was like, hey, tell me if this is any good. And Beard was like, it sucks. And he goes, I know it does. And he just threw it in the trash and was like, let's start working on the magazine. Like just completely like, (laughs) like seemed like the most difficult human being to work with because he left the magazine He was kind of blackballed by the magazine when he came back. They didn't want Mm -hmm. him working on the magazine because they didn't feel like they could trust him because he just upped and left. Left. So they're like, go find something else to do under the National Lampoon name. So he started doing college tours and he would appear at colleges and he would talk about the magazine. And while doing that, he would hit up all the different improv and comedy scenes. And one particular day he was in Chicago and that's when he met. John Belushi, Harold Ramis, uh, a bunch of the Second City team, essentially, mm-hmm. and said, y'all have to come to New York. We're going to figure out something. And just on a whim, John Belushi, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, and uh, I believe it was Harold Ramis all jumped in a van and moved to New York with no job lined up 
And he was like, we're going to start a radio show. And they started the National Lampoon Radio Hour, where they would do these improvised hour-long comedy shows on the radio. The popularity of that turned into let's do a Woodstock parody, and they called it Lemmings. And it was like Woodstock gone wrong. And that's where John Belushi first did his John Cocker impersonation. That's like they basically just had all of these Lampoon characters. That's when Gilda Radner came in. Like when they were trying to do Saturday Night Live, they came to National Lampoon first. And the guy who I talked about earlier who couldn't pay them out. Mm-hmm. Didn't think it was a good idea. Never passed the idea to them. Now, Lauren Michaels, oh, he's kicking himself. <laughs> who Lauren Michaels was a huge fan of the Lemmings show in New York and would go and see it on a regular basis. And that's when he decided to pitch his comedy show to NBC instead, knowing that they were looking for something. And he used Lemmings as his like, this is the type of thing we want to do. And then mm-hmm. auditioned a bunch of those performers and and basically got all of them. <laughs> God got almost all of them to be on his show and took most of the writing staff from National Lampoon to write that first season as well, which put Doug in a deep depression. Now, ready to cash out officially, the guy still not having money made a desperate play and he said, you can't leave now. We're about to produce our first movie, <laughs> which he had no plans of, but he figured it would didn't keep exist. them. Yeah, it didn't exist. So he told Doug Kinney that him and his friend Harold could write a movie together. And they wrote Animal House. And they said his exact quote was, if Lauren Michaels is going to beat us to having the National Lampoon's TV series, we're going to beat him to a National Lampoon movie. The original design of the National Lampoon movie, John Belushi was basically the only character that they got in the movie with the actor that they wanted. For the role, mm-hmm. um, the role of Otter, they wanted Chevy Chase for the role of D-Day. They wanted Dan Aykroyd for like they wanted that core. Group. They wanted their original radio cast. Yes, they wanted yeah. it to be this reunion. Obviously, contracts and money become a thing, but they make this Animal House movie. No one believes in it. No one thinks that it's going to work. The biggest thing that you need to know about the Animal House movie is that Harold Ramis was told he would be allowed to direct the film. Mm-hmm. And then at the last second, they're like, we can't hire someone who's never directed anything in his life. <laughs> We're going to hire this John Landis kid instead. Harold Ramis took great offense. And went off and had his own revenge career. Well, he left. He was just like, I'm not going to be a part of this. And he disappears and he goes back to Lampoon to work on the magazine some more. The other two, Doug Kinney and the other writer who like the Animal House movie is based on an article that was in the National Lampoon about this one guy's experience at Frats. Because Frats weren't like a super prevalent thing at Harvard, really, like not on that scale. So like Doug Mm -hmm. Kinney was just like obsessed with this concept of like these out of control, like parties drunk, and drunk party animals. So he like was all about being on the set and experiencing that since he didn't have that as part of his college experience. So he actually has a role in the movie. He appears in the movie. He is the character who guides the marching band into an alley in the middle of nowhere. Oh, okay, yeah. and he has he has a couple lines and he's like, what are you, some kind of moron? Like he says that line. He's got a couple mm-hmm key lines in the movie, but uh, an actor he was not. (laughs) The biggest thing, though, was adding John Landis to the craziness was that John Landis kept everything on track. He knew knew the the right amount of things to film, and he really made sure that they stuck to the script. National Lampoon's Animal House 
becomes a fucking sensation. Like, it is an explosion, this nuclear explosion of comedy. No one's ever seen it before. They think that this is like the game changer, right? And I've talked about this a little bit because I said like there was MASH was like kind of opening the door to this kind Mm -hmm. of movie. But like you look at comedies up until Animal House and comedies after Animal House and it is literally changes what you can do in a comedy and yeah for better or for worse you know like some of this stuff doesn't age well but like it was a very dramatic we are sick and tired of just like the screwball comedy witty Mm -hmm. charismatic everybody's a good guy type movie and we want to make movies where everyone's a villain even the people you're cheering Mm -hmm. for are kind of villains so just earth-shattering concepts that they come up with for this so now all of a sudden doug kinney harold ramis john landis all of these guys are a hot commodity everybody wants a piece of them Mm -hmm. so harold ramis and doug kinney are like let's do another movie let's make sure now we have we're in a power position We'll say that we'll walk unless you get to direct it, Harold. Like, they're like, this is going to be your movie. So they start shopping around. They end up with Orion Pictures, a brand new studio who wants to produce their next movie. They don't care what it is. So they bring in their friends, Bill and Brian Doyle Murray, to help them work on this script. Because the Murray brothers are two, like, Brian Doyle and Bill are two of, I believe, nine children. The Murray family is massive. What you may not know is that in the summers when they were teenagers, all of the Murray kids made a living as caddies at the local country club. So, Brian Doyle, yeah, Brian Doyle Murray had all of these stories about, like, what it's like being, like, this poor kid who carries the bag for the rich, eccentric person Mm -hmm. and how weird some of these eccentric people were that spent all their time at country clubs so they start putting all of this into a script and they write caddyshack and apparently the original script was like 350 something pages it was this massive bible (laughs) of a script simultaneously john landis and john belushi and Dan Aykroyd go off to make the blues brothers and and now it's seen as this competitive like Who's going to rise above as the who's who are we following as the success of Animal mm-hmm. House? Was it the guys who wrote it or was the star and the director like so there's this kind of playful but not so playful battle between these two mm-hmm. different teams. They have to do everything in their power to get the actors that they want for these roles because Orion's like getting really nervous that there's a lot of inexperience. And apparently every time that they went into the writer's room, it was just clouds of weed and piles of cocaine. But they're like, no, we can get Bill Murray. We can get Harold Ramis. We can get Ted Knight. And we want to get Rodney Dangerfield. And Orion's like, if you can nail all of those names down, we will leave you alone. Which probably was the biggest mistake of Orion's career because what Mm -hmm. ended up happening is Harold Ramis being an inexperienced director decided I don't I've done improv my entire life I'm sure that we can just improvise this movie and it'll cut together and make sense so (laughs) they kind of threw away the script for most of the filming and would just say like you know all right, in this scene, Chevy, you give him a speech. And then they would just hit record and let Chevy just ramble and ramble for two hours and then feel like, okay, we'll get something out of that. That was the vibe for about two weeks. They The book describes 
the filming of Caddyshack as like the most insane situation. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And they said that there's really no acting in that movie that you're seeing. Like, even Ted Knight. Ted Knight was like this classically trained actor. He went to bed at 8, at 8 p.m. every night, was awake at 5 a.m. every morning, had his own like private hotel because he didn't want to stay. Everyone else rented rooms at the club where they were filming everything. So okay, it was like so they, they were just... on set 24-7, <laughs> just getting party, like partying crazy. But Ted Knight was like a follow the script type person. Mm -hmm. So when you watch that movie, him angrier and angrier, is it's also very real. It's very real because he has no improv background. So people are like making up stuff on, on He's the like, spot. This isn't in the book. I yeah. go by the script. Yeah. <laughs> like apparently there's, there's a scene that I always remembered loving that they talk about in the book. And if you remember, there's a scene where Smales and another character are having a conversation. And in the background is one of the golfer's nephews. And he's just trying to hit a golf ball and he keeps missing it. And he's yelling like turds, double turds like because he's <laughs> missing the ball apparently harold ramus pulled him aside and was like hey this scene's kind of boring comedically it's just like a dialogue scene so pretend that you're trying to hit the golf ball and just start yelling nonsense every time that you miss the ball and the this is like a 19 year old kid he's like all right so he goes and he does the scene but harold ramus admits like I knew that it would piss off Ted and that but he that would, would only like make it better. Just yeah. that like authentic fuel and, to the fire. And the kids said that Ted Knight, after they were done filming, pulled him aside and was like, look, I know you're new here, but it's not appropriate to up like to try to pull the spotlight off of the actual actors. He thought it was just an extra like going into business God. for himself. Like, the director told me. <laughs> so like complete pandemonium. Doug Kenny decides that he wants to be a producer when they make this movie. He's like, I co-wrote it, but like, you know, Harold's the director, you know, Brian Doyle Murray's acting in it. Bill Murray's acting in it. I don't want to be an actor. I'm going to be a producer. That seems to be where the business is at. And that's mm -hmm. when he quickly learned that being a producer is fucking boring when you're actually on set. Like you're basically just in charge of making sure that stuff runs on time. And Caddyshack was absolutely never going to be running on time. So he would just spend all of his time getting high in his bedroom with whatever person wasn't filming at that time <laughs> and started to fall into a depression. So the movie comes mm -hmm. out and the movie originally is three hours long. They they tried oh so hard to keep in every funny bit because they were also editing it themselves that finally Orion Pictures is like, we need to bring in literally anybody else to edit this movie. <laughs> so here comes when you're like 
a super creative minded person. This is where I kind of relate to Doug Kinney. Doug Kinney is experiencing true failure for the first time in his mind. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he starts the the National Lampoon. It's a huge success. He writes he he does a Broadway show. It blows up. He does a radio hour. They basically steal his idea and turn it into a TV show. Like he makes a movie. It's the biggest movie of all time. And now mm-hmm. he's having something that he worked on being pulled away from him because it's so bad. Um, mm-hmm. The dancing gopher was never in the original movie. That was a thing that they shot afterwards with a second crew to try to piece the movie together with like some through line because it was so disconnected. So Doug Kinney didn't get to see the final product of the movie until the press screening. So he's sitting in the back. He's seeing that this isn't the movie that he made anymore. And he can tell that the audience is not loving it. The way it was reported was like there were chuckles, but there wasn't any like huge. It wasn't the animal house response. It wasn't the animal house response. People weren't losing their minds. So Doug Kenny gets drunk and very stoned and stumbles into the morning press junket. And as soon as they start, the junket starts to heckle everybody involved in Caddyshack from the back. (laughs) Yelling about how awful the movie is, how disappointing it is, how the press should have plenty of fodder to make sure that no one sees the movie, like has a full public breakdown in Mm. front of the people who are trying to save the movie. Oh, no. And it's decided, Doug, you need you need to go away. Their solution is to take his best friend and drug buddy, Chevy Chase, and have him take him to an island for him to detox. Apparently, no detoxing happened. Well, that's exactly what they did, right? During that trip. Chevy Chase had to go back home to film a movie. Doug said he was going to stay for another day or two and then catch up with him. And then no one hears from Doug for a little bit. Mm. And people are like, oh, no, what happened? They show up to his hotel room. It's a complete mess, but it's got all these different notes and like ideas for future movies, ideas for books. And there was a note that he left that I, I don't know why the sentiment of this note always hits me so hard, but it's something that I feel like I can relate to in a weird way is that Mm -hmm. there was just a single note that said, these have been some of the best days I've ever ignored. I think really encapsulates the sense of humor of Doug Kinney and like the, the weirdness of like how he saw the world and like what he considered funny and what he considered interesting. So they go and they find he went for a hike and there was a hike trail that was like, hey, no one passed this point. Doug Kenny always would accept the challenge. So he went up to that Nothing hill. Nothing went past this point. Yeah. yeah, he went past that point and they found a pair of sneakers and some glasses. And then at the bottom of the, mm. the cliff, his body. Mm. It was ruled as an accidental death. His friends debate it if it was suicide or if he actually was just high and fell. Harold Ramis specifically said, knowing Doug, he fell trying to find a place to jump. Which is yeah. <laughs> which is such a I think you've said that before. I think yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. That's great line. Like that's that's when you know that you've left your impact as a comedian on your friends that they'll make jokes like that. Mm-hmm. He was kind of the first a lot of people say like John Belushi was the first casualty of that comedy scene, but it really was Doug. Doug died first. People have kind of said that it's a shame because, you know, now Caddyshack is regarded as 
a masterpiece. I actually think Caddyshack is a better movie than Animal House, personally. Mm-hmm. I think Animal House just got the notoriety because, like you said, it was the first one. It was a trailblazer. It was so the first one. That's the first always kind of gets that, like, higher recognition, but isn't always necessarily the best. Exactly. And it's one of those stories where it's like, I am always kind of inspired by Doug Kinney's story of, like, mm-hmm. just leaning into the weird and being weird. But, like, mm-hmm. it also... You know, it breaks your heart because it's like yeah. here's this brilliant comedic mind, and and especially at that time when you look at the late seventies, early eighties, such a dangerous time to be a com uh, in comedy because yeah. it's just very drugs are absolutely flowing everywhere, and it's kind of celebrated to be broken. It makes me excited that like modern day. I always talk about how. Modern day wrestling and modern day comedy are are on the same path right now where it's like, no, it's like cool to be sober. It's cool to be seeing a therapist. It's cool to be like taking care mm-hmm. of your body and eating healthy. Like, Yeah, it's like our health in, as a society is more of a higher concern, be it physical health and mental health is yeah. such a huge it, I hate to call it a it's a fad. It's a great fad, but it's it's really in, but it's good. It's like we care. And so normally it's stereotypical for comedians to come from a depressed point of view. And and that's kind of where, you know, as I've told you many times, it's like comedy's my coping mechanism. So sometimes when I'm like the lowest, I'll come out with the funniest. Yeah. I'm like, uh oh, but it is, but it's it, there was no way to handle it then, except like you said, there's just so many accessibilities to drugs. Yeah. And that is a great and, way to, you know, combat depression. And it being celebrated. Like I, I talked about this on a different podcast, but like I think of say like John Candy. You know what I mean? Like when John Candy mm-hmm. died, not that John Candy was ever big on the drug scene. He was just a heavy, like he smoked his cigars and drank his booze, but he wasn't doing the cocaine or anything like that. But like John Hughes walked away from Hollywood entirely after John Candy died Mm. because he felt like he couldn't support a machine that put their profits above John Candy getting help. So like, yeah, they wanted him to be the 400 pound cigar smoking drinking party guy and and put it in his brain that he wasn't worth anything if he wasn't that guy. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, and you look at now like we do celebrate when people are able to break out of that role even to the to the extent of i was talking about like melissa mccarthy you know what i mean like she's stepped away from being like the pratfall girl and is actually doing these amazing dramatic roles and stuff because like that alone being the person who has to fall down a flight of stairs constantly is like not good for your body i can back that statement up as a former <laughs> stunt woman yeah but yeah that, i just wanted to i wanted to tell more people about the story of doug kenny because I've been a huge comedy fan and and really until that Netflix movie, I didn't know who he was. And then the more mm-hmm. that I researched yeah, I didn't him, know who he was. Yeah. The more I researched him, the more I'm like, God, this dude is probably one of the most iconic and important people in comedy. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a huge comedy lover and I didn't know who he was. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah that, that is a shame that it's like, it's he did he, the things that he did in his career changed what we know as comedy. Like yes. you said, it's like this radio show basically was like the previs of SNL and and Animal House, again, like you said, completely changed the path and trajectory of comedic films and what we know today. It's it's uh yeah, it is we should let's get his name out there. Yeah. I'm all right. 
So Gelsey obviously throughout that recording, we were talking about Doug Kenny, someone who I think is a, a greatly underappreciated comedic genius who, mm-hmm. you know, I think to this day, tragically is still not well known. I'm curious, is there anyone that you can think of that you feel like does not get nearly the amount of mainstream exposure for how important they've been to not just film, but any, any thing, you know, dance or music or uh, comedy or, or anything. I know I have like so many, that's such a good question. I'd have to think about that to be real honest. Cause I feel like I always constantly hear myself being like, God, that person's so underrated and they need more recognition. And, and and now my mind's just going blank. It happens. I know Damn that my, my dad used to say a thing, uh, and and I've, I've heard this from a few other places too, but like it never really pays to be the first person to do something. I 100% agree with that. You don't want to be, you don't want to win American Idol unless you're Kelly Clarkson or what was her name? Carrie Underwood. They're yeah. like the exceptions. You don't want to win American Idol because you don't know any of them. But the people that have huge careers were like third runner up fifth runner up like yeah exactly same in life well and i don't think of first you know like technically nirvana was basically just doing what say mud honey or mother love bone was doing before them but Mm -hmm. like you know unless you're really into 90s grunge music you don't really know who mud honey or mother love bone is but you definitely know who nirvana is because Mm -hmm. they you know you get the advantage of seeing someone try something differently, but then being like, yeah, but if you mix that with a little bit of what's already popular, you can Mm -hmm. create a completely unique sound. I guess it sucks to say it like this, but it doesn't pay to be unique sometimes. Yeah, well, because someone will take your idea. Yeah, Yeah, someone will take (laughs) your idea. They're like, that's a great idea, but what if we did it this way? Like you just said, and it's so true. It's um, it's kind of... I don't have exact names right now, unfortunately, but I do want to do an episode on jump blues and it's the genre right before rock and roll was birthed. And a lot of those artists and songs, I mean like Hound Dog, which we know from Elvis Presley, he is not the first person to do Hound Dog. You know, there's there's an older recording and so it's like all these amazing hit songs got written and created and performed, but then someone comes along and, you know, you see that all the time in music. Yeah. And so I think there's just so many musicians that could be listed in this category that I think a lot, we don't even know who they are, unfortunately. Yeah. You bring up jump blues. I, I didn't even makes me think of, you ever listened to skiffle? You know what skiffle no. is? Okay. No. So skiffle, I remember this from my American music class, but it was like very garagey. It was like, uh-huh. they're from low incomes. They can't afford instruments. So it was like, literally like instead of a bass, Skiffle bands were like a bathtub, a wash like tub, a washboard. Yeah, like a wash tub with a hole in it with a big stick and some strings on it for them to slap. But it was like that. Their drums were like at most like a snare and then like a guy who had like a very cheap guitar, but they would do their best to do rock and roll. And it was this completely unique oh, cool. sound. But like you well, listen really to cool. Skiffle and you hear like what would become like the sound of the Beatles almost. Like it's like very yeah. like that just like scrappy simplistic fast rock music fine i gotta listen to that before you listen to that skiffle song where can people go to check out and maybe send us other skiffle songs please send us your skiffle songs you can come check us out on the gram of insta our handle is at before my time underscore podcast you can also find us on facebook just search before my time that's right that picture is my mug that'll show up 
join us there. Send some skiffle songs there. Send us some favorite videos and images from things that you love before your time or that you just think, this is crazy. Let me share it with a community of people who love this shit. Please, if you would love to, give us a five-star review. It helps us out. It makes me love you more. I already love you. You know that. But it would be grand. And we'll be back next week with more Before My Time. Yeah. idea for a podcast but don't know where to start? Or do you have an already existing podcast that you want to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. From concept development to theme music to editing to logos, WeKnowPodcasting.com is a one-stop shop for all things pod. Don't hesitate to hit us up. We're very nice. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.